1: 18 plus.
2: Formed in 1989 in Texas, a group of Southern rockers crafted one of the earwormiest songs of the post-grange era. Possum Kingdom was an inescapable hit throughout 1995 and 1996, remembered for its iconic guitar and bass lines and its repetitive closing bridge of Do You Want to Die. Chris is busy with punchline work the next few weeks, so myself, producer Matt, took time this week to sit down with my college friend and local DJ, AJ Santini, to discuss if the Toadies brought the one-hit thunder or if we want to die when we hear it. I'm not gonna
3: lie I'll not be a gentleman
0: One hit is all you need To make the money guaranteed can live our forever. And it
1: makes me wonder. Is it just a wonder, or is
2: it So the Toadies. Yeah. So you picked the Toadies, huh? Yes, I did. I was hoping we would get to the Toady Toadies eventually.
1: Yeah, I knew I knew you would. And and that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it too, uh, with you, Matt, because the Toadies are one of those bands, at least for me, if I if I just want to talk about the reason I picked them, like they're one of those bands that like this album doesn't have a bad second not just a bad song. It doesn't have a bad second on it. Like even like the feedback it, it, intros or outros or what everything like means something and belongs there. It's like perfect. It's a perfect record. Uh, rubberneck. And I don't understand why this song was a one hit wonder or this band. And it wasn't without trying. Do you know how many singles they released off this album? <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I'm going to try and guess. We have, you know, Possum Kingdom, Tyler, I Burn. No, not I Burn. Mr. Love, uh, Backslider, Away. So what, six? Five, five or six, six? Six. Yeah. I Come to. I come From the Water. And I Come From the Water, which, oh, which is like my favorite guitar riff of all time.
2: Yeah, it's, it's insane. The band formed in 1989. Okay. And they were going at this for a while because this album didn't come out until 94. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is rec- re-recorded tracks from the demo. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Which I love the name of their, their demo, too. It's like, it's not real leather, it's pleather. It's pleather. It's <laughs> They were, someone, uh, I was when I
2: was looking up the band, I saw a wiki on Wiki uh, that one reviewer said that the band was distinctly Grudge and distinctly from Texas. Yes. Which is a great way to sum up this
3: band.
1: Exactly, and think about like some of the bands at the time, like late 80s, early 90s, Texas bands. I mean, really, they are distinct. Butthole Surfers is the first one that comes to mind. And they opened for Butthole Surfers a couple times, which totally makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Because they have that weird,
2: like, they're not, to- they're not as weird as the Butthole Surfers. Like, the Butthole Surfers, who, I mean, obviously, stay tuned, future episodes. Like, <laughs> I hope so. Like, But, you know, the Butthole Surfers were so weird, and they had such a vast catalog of, like... I mean, they- they're a band that, like, literally is, like, the heavy metal equivalent of avant-garde music. Mm-hmm. Like, Toadies wasn't that far into that spectrum, but they were definitely doing a lot more than, like, your usual post-grunge band.
1: Right. And 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 saying they formed in '89, which is the year you know, Bleach came out by Nirvana on Sub Pop. So, you know, thinking about that, like they formed at a time, you know, they were there were a couple nerds that worked in a record store. I know, uh, you know, Todd and Lisa worked in the record store uh, together, right? And uh, I think they were the one of their guitarists. So I'm blanking on the name of their Other guitarist, but we'll just say the other guitarist. The other guitarist, to I, us. <laughs> I apologize if the Toadies ever get around to listen to this. Uh, know that you're <laughs> way more important than that, but you know, that I, uh, you know, I think his, he was saying the influences were things like Butthole Surfers, were the you know, the Pixies, uh, which you hear all over the record. I mean, th- this is a band that distinctly took everything and encapsulated everything from the grunge era and then made it their own and, like, filtered it through, at least lyrically, through Todd's, like, religious, overly religious upbringing. Yeah,
2: because there's there's something that... So here's a fun fact with me and the Toadies is that the Toadies is how I first heard of Reverend Horton Heat Mm. because they thank Reverend Horton Heat for his spiritual guidance in the thank you. Yes. And I was like, who is Reverend Horton Heat? I started digging into, like, their back catalog as well. But there is, there's, like, it's like a rockabilly band without
1: the rockabilly. Oh, yeah. That's a great point.
2: Because it's just got the, it's that very, like, like, you know who the Toadies really should have been on tour with is Southern culture on the skits. Yes. Like, like, they had that same very Southern rock and roll, but, like, blend it with, like, the
1: anger and angst of grunge. Sure. Yeah. Because this album's dark. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean, and, and speaking of Reverend Horton Heat, uh, something that I actually just found out today, doing you know a little bit of research for this podcast, um, was that they opened with Mexican Hairless, the instrumental, due to the fact that Reverend Horton Heat opened one of their albums with an instrumental. And all the label completely was like, no, you should not do that. That's the worst idea ever. People are going to take this album, listen to it, Realize there's no lyrics, it's just noise, and then take it back to, like, the store, like a Sam Goody or The Wall, and just want their money back, because this is nonsense. And what a
2: paranoid fear, because, like, Mexican Hairless is, like, a minute and 15 seconds, (laughs) and then you go right into Mr. Love, which, like, starts vocals within, like, 30 seconds. right. Like it's not like they had like a seven minute instrumental to kick off the record, right?
1: And and I think that, that I mean that I that kind of idea is what we you know we were talking about as this we were setting up for, to talk about this episode was you know just the the complete fear and control that record companies had at this time and how much of like really the toadies demise I don't want to say demise because they didn't fail but like they they didn't really have a hit as big as possum kingdom and didn't release another album for six years for yeah for six years but but that's interscope's fault right like that's the thing
2: like i didn't realize that i think in my brain i knew that it took a while for the second album to come out but like over the years i rewrote that and i was like "No, no no the second album came out like two or three years later and it just didn't didn't hint but it's like no i was in I was in elementary school when I heard Possum Kingdom, and I was in high school when there was a teacher that knew that I liked music. And sometimes she would get random CDs. I don't know where she was getting them from. But she gave me two CDs, and the one was SR-71. Uh, <laughs> this is like their debut album. Sure, she's like, with Right Now? Yeah, she's like, I have no use for this. <laughs>
1: with but, the robot on the cover?
2: But the other one was a one-song sampl- sampler of... Heaven Above, Hell Below. And that's oh. it. It was just that song and nothing else. And I was like, oh, my God, this next Toadies album is going to be fucking amazing. <laughs> and it was like another year before it came out. And I didn't even know it was out until I saw it at a CD store right. one day.
1: And, and I'm sitting here like I. the only thing I thought of was that like looking at the timeline, because I, 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 I'm i picturing like the year 2000. Like for me, I, I'm graduating high school in yeah. the year 2000. So in the year 2000, I went, you know, middle school, Possum Kingdom and Rubberneck comes out. I get to the end of my high school career without any new music at all from the fucking toadies. Yeah, none, and so they completely dropped off the radar. And you're thinking that time, like ninety nine, two thousands, you have Blink one eight two, End of the State, you have like the pop punk movement, you have obviously like every.
2: But oh, music's completely different. Come two thousand,
1: right? Yeah. Completely different. I mean, you you know you have the boy band takeover and the the Britney and all that stuff. And popularity wise, like rock is, is is off the is off the radar for most people. So two thousand one. You know, I mean, I was in college and I'm thinking like Eminem, Marshall Mathers LP was probably what I was bumping at that time. I'm not going back to the toadies like I'm buying Sean John because I'm (laughs) I'm apparently trying to fit in. You know, so it's like, you know, how how much of it was the weight?
2: Yeah, I I think one of the things that's worth calling out is uh, and I made a note to bring this up was that during the time between Rubberneck and Heaven Above, Hell Below, there was. Like, I would say the Toadies got themselves into this nice little niche of, like, compilation soundtrack appearances because they were on the Cable Guy soundtrack. Yeah. They were on the Escape from L.A. soundtrack. They were on the Crow 2 City of Angels soundtrack. Yes. And it was all original songs. It wasn't like they just pulled songs off of Rubberneck and threw them on there. They wrote new music for all those. And then uh, one of my secret favorite albums from the 90s, and I'm curious if you had this too, because we could go on a whole tangent about it, is the Saturday Morning Cartoons Greatest yes, Album. Yes, absolutely. The, like, I didn't really love their cover of the Groovy Ghoulies theme, but like, that CD- but it's on there. That CD
1: is amazing. Dude. For, like, for, I mean, first off, just the fact that the video itself, I think- where they talked about this and they got this idea, Drew Barrymore hosted, which, you know, that that is an obsession of mine. But then you get to the CD and you have, uh, what, Butthole Surfers. Yeah, Butthole uh, Surfers doing Underdog. Yeah. Yes, Underdog. Who did Gigantor? That was Helmet. Helmet Helmet did did Gigantor. Gigantor. You have Sublime doing Hong Kong Fu. Which sounds so,
2: it's so good. It's, yeah. You've got Wax doing that version of Happy Happy Joy Joy that just sounds like insanity for like three minutes. (laughs) Like, it is the craziest. (laughs) It is still like one of my favorite covers to play people because it's, insanity. Well, the, it is the musical equivalent of what John Kay was doing with the animation. Yeah. Oh, it ends with just them screaming. Yeah. Like, I think I if I play any clips in this, it's got to just be the last, like, 30 seconds of that happy, happy Joy, George Yeah. because <laughs> it's insane.
3: Like a fly mare and a bumblebee I told you to shoot But you didn't believe me Why didn't you believe me?
1: It is so good, and yeah, you have, and and it's funny because there are a lot of shows that I know the themes to that I did not grow up with because they were a little before my time. Oh, pretty much anything from uh... the Banana Splits. Yeah, and... that whole that
2: guy. Yeah, like, uh, Sigma. <laughs> sig- uh, what the heck is it? It's <laughs> Because they be, they became friends with one of my, bo- like, my boss when I lived in L.A., yes. and that was, like, a big deal, it was, like, she would take photos with them. Yeah, they did Sigmund the Sea Monster, which is how I first, ter- that was the first time I ever heard Tripping Daisy oh, was yeah. their cover of that song, and I was like, this is great. And, like, it it was years before I connected him with uh, Polyphonic Spree, because I was always a polyphonic, like, the second I heard Polyphonic Spree, I was all in. I know a lot of people hated him, but I was, like, all in on Polyphonic oh, Spree. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Sid
1: and Marty Croft, Sid and Marty Croft. Yeah. There
2: we go. I'm like, Sigmund, Sigmund.
1: <laughs> so Sigmund the Sea Monster, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Listeners, if you haven't heard that album, you can probably get it for like 10 cents on Amazon. And I don't know that it exists digitally. No, it doesn't. So you have to physically buy a CD, but it's yeah. going to be worth every penny. Um, so here's the big... Th- so here's the thing. I, was t- I warned you about this. Yeah. So the single was released on August 30th, 1994. Okay. It peaked. It hit its peak on the Modern Rock charts on November 25th, 1995. So over a year and some change from Ooh. when the single was first god. released.
1: <laughs> oh my god. What uh, How what uh Do you want to know what else was on the charts at the at the time that it peaked? I want to say like Seven Mary Three and Bush and all that shit. So, sort of.
3: Okay, go So, ahead.
1: at number five, they mm-hmm. peaked at
2: four. Okay. At number five was Geek's Think Breath for Green Day. Yeah. So, they, Insomnia, Insomnia. My Insomnia, favorite Green Day album, by the way. Yeah, Insomniac's great. Just dropped. Then it was the Toadies at four. Number three was Named by the Goo Goo Dolls. Okay. Good jam. I'm starting to remember who I'm dating at this time. Go ahead. Yeah, good ballad. <laughs> number two, Smashing Pumpkins, Just Coming Back with Bullet with a Butterfly Wing. Yeah. Yeah. At number one, your favorite band, My Friends by Red Hot Chili Peppers was the top Fuck of the that. modern rock chart. <laughs>
1: Yeah, see, And you know, too, and I love, I, I need this documented that one of my favorite quotes is Nick Cave saying, I'm constantly looking at my radio and saying, what the fuck is this shit? And the answer is always the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And well, I will say this, though. The Dave Navarro album of Red Hot Chili Peppers is, gets a pass from me. I don't know why, but I, I think it's, maybe it's like the, if it's the Iggy Pop reference or the song Warped or the, or the punkiness of it. But for some reason, that uh, One Hot Minute album i love so here's a fun fact about me actually is that
2: i uh was kind of sheltered from music for the first couple years of my life like Mm -hmm. for for a long time the only music that i knew existed was like bruce springsteen and meatloaf because that was like what was most popular in my parents car so when my cousin my cousin went from rock music to hip-hop and just was like, I don't even want my CDs anymore. And he gave me all of his albums. Oh, and that was my first exposure to like any music that wasn't my parents' music. So he gave me Nevermind, In Utero, Dookie, Kerplunk, A Thousand Smooth Out Slappy Hours and Super Unknown by SoundCloud. Wow, okay. So I got those six albums. Those were the first... And the Wayne's World 2 soundtrack. Those were the first seven CDs I ever owned. That's awesome. I didn't know that Kurt Cobain was dead at the time. (laughs) So there's all these bands where, like, everyone else's first exposure to them was, like, their hit. But for me, it was, like, the first song by the Red Hot Chili Peppers I ever heard was Warped. Yeah. Like, the first song by Smashing Pumpkins I ever heard was Bullet With a Butterfly. Okay. Like, I just was just off... I was... Right after Grunge had hit its peak and was like transitioning out, and like all these bands were putting out like their last huge record. Right. So, like, so I was like just in that 1990, like end of 95, beginning of 96, like bubble. Yeah. Where everything was. Because it was like
1: shifting over to like pop punk.
2: Yeah. And I was, I mean, Green Day was like, it's Green Day still like top 10 bands of all time for me. Cause it's just like, I've always said with Green Day and with Weezer. I feel like the worst album by either one of those bands is usually still better than most of, like, like 90% of bands at their best. Sure, like, yeah. Like, they just, like, a lot of people are shitting on the newest
1: Green Day record. It's not great, but, like, I don't know. I, it's different, and I said this, too. Sadly, I sent a message to a Warner executive who completely just shit on me with the message, and I was like, this album, because I heard it when it first came out, and I said, this album would be a great The Network album. Yeah, because I thought it would it would be a phenomenal Green Day side project. I don't know that it fits in the Green Day canon of like what the, but 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 I can't I can't shit on it because it's good music. It's it, it's good. It's just not Green Day. It's just I mean, at this point they are a brand and they are a sound and they've they've carved a niche in in you know the popular culture. And I don't. I, this is a little different, so it's hard to to take it under the Green Day label. I would I would say it's similar to like when when Blink One Eighty Two put
2: out Neighborhoods. I remember telling someone that it was the the uh, Boxcar Racer follow up that I always wanted. Like yes. it didn't sound like a Blink Two record, but man, I loved Boxcar Racer, and that's what it reminded me of. So I was still all in on that album. Sure. And I know people who hate that album. They hate that album. They hate the self titled. And I find like they're not the. They're definitely. I'm never gonna ride or die for those albums on in the discography of right. Blink. But like.
1: But it's, it's better than a lot, you know, a lot of the stuff that's out there. No, yeah, one hundred percent. I will take "Hearts All Gone" interlude into "Hearts All Gone" all day long, <laughs> all day long. I will, I will play that on repeat. And, 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 but whatever. The biggest
2: issue with neighborhoods was probably that the single that they released for it was the worst track on that album. Yeah, because that "Up All Night" song is not good. No, but like "Ghost on the Dance Floor," like that song's a fucking bop. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's like that song rules. It is. So let's talk about what was happening in nineteen ninety four. Okay, so I looked up. Two things. I wanted to see, A, what were the best-selling singles of, of, I said 2004, but 1994. Absolutely. And what were the top 10 best-selling albums. Okay. So, first is the best singles. Uh, I just grabbed three of the five, because they were noteworthy ones. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Philadelphia Oh yeah, was one of the best-selling singles. Redneck's Cotton Eye Joe <laughs> was around this time. Yep. And All for One, I Swear.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, okay.
2: Then you look at what the best-selling records are. And when we get to number one, I'm going to ask you a question because I'm curious if this is based on the sales in 1994 or adjust it for like si- circuit like best-selling records of 1994 according to record sales up to 2020. Gotcha. So number 10, Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral. Yeah. Uh, side note, there's not a single album on this top 10 list that's not an absolute must-own. Yeah. Like, 94 is a fantastic year. Yeah. Uh, number nine, one of my first albums, Soundgarden, Super Unknown. Okay, yep. Number eight was Blur, Park Life. This is in America. I think it's worldwide. Oh, uh, okay. Possibly. Number seven, actually, I almost guarantee it was worldwide based okay. on what's that number two. Um, <laughs> number seven, Nozzlematic. Okay. Classic. The only rap record on this top 10 list, which well, yeah. is crazy. Uh, number six, another one of my first albums, Green Day Dookie. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, number five, Nirvana, MTV Unplugged. Absol-
1: oh, yeah. That, of course. That got a huge boost because of his his passing.
2: Number four, which is the most recent of these albums that I purchased, and I was very late to the party on this, but Portishead Dummy. Yes. Which is incredible. But it, it, another one that makes me think worldwide versus just in the United States. Ha- yeah,
1: because, yeah, that was huge in Britain.
2: Uh, number three was Weezer Self-Titled
1: yeah yeah absolutely the blue album yeah yeah you said self-titled i'm like that's three different four different albums
2: (laughs) uh number two oasis definitely maybe definitely worldwide yeah and here's the one where i'm curious if it's worldwide and as of 1994 or if they're counting like all of the years of sales it says that the number one best-selling record in 1994 was jeff buckley grace i find that like i could see that now yeah, obviously. Where's where this list from? That's on Wiki, so we're based okay. on Wikipedia. Okay. But, side note, like, trust. I'll I'll trust Wikipedia with a grain of salt. Yeah. Because I was checking up on a wrestling pay per view result the other day, and it said that Vince McMahon had beaten God that night, and it was last <laughs> night. So like, someone was having some fun on Wiki. So yeah. you, Obviously, all of it take with a grain of salt.
1: Sure. Let's see then, because I mean. Jeff Buckley, I mean, because Grace was re- Grace was released posthumously, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, so if Grace was released posthumously, then there might, but was Hallelujah. So you would have known this better than I would have, because
2: mm-hmm. a, I wasn't listening to the radio at this time, as we've established. It was yeah. the following year that I really got into the radio. Mm-hmm. Was Hallelujah big in '94 the way it is in 2020? Like,
1: not to me, but then again, you know, like my. So I mean, my at the time it's, I would have
2: hated that song at nine.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, well, yeah, yeah, it wouldn't have registered for me. And, and it didn't until years later. I mean, I like the Smashing Pumpkins, but like, you know, I think that's as far. Like, I wasn't into like Buckley or Shoe Gaze or like, you know, anything that's kind of like, because I, I mean, you can pro- probably tell just by this couple minutes of listening to me or, you know, I am an ADHD, unmedicated coffee addict and was as a kid too so like seven
2: minute droney songs is not going to win you over no
1: and (laughs) you know and and any of even some of the originals lover i should have come over or last goodbye like i would i wouldn't have i would have been bored to tears by that
2: yeah Um, i feel like
1: i was just listening to that record
2: the other day and there's like maybe two or three songs where because from when i think of jeff buckley i go to lover i should have come or or hallelujah i'm like okay yeah yeah that's jeff buckley yeah there's, like, two or three songs that really rock on there that I forget about. Uh-huh. Like, so real, mm-hmm. like, built. Oh, yeah. But, like, I forget about it because, to me, it's, like, Jeff Buckley is, like, just a dude with, an, with a guitar hanging out in the studio by himself, just, like, fiddling away and singing beautifully. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, that list can't be right. I can't. I, that's, yeah. that's how I felt. Uh, but one last thing, just, like, Jeff Buckley, another—I feel like there's a long list of people where it's, like, the what-ifs. What like And Jeff Buckley is a big what-if oh, for yeah. me. It's, like, him— Tim, Kirk Cobain, obviously. And then for me it's like Shannon from Blind Melon, Shannon, Hoon, yeah. And uh Bradley from Sublime. Like I they're probably the four where I'm like, I would love to know like what would have happened. Sure. Uh I, I think it was I mean, you and I are both big uh clusterman fans. I was like, yeah, I was just gonna refer yeah. Chuck Clusterman
1: wrote an out yeah. That yeah. article. But
2: yeah, he when he I mean I always think about where he said like there could be a world where like Kirk Cobain pulls an Eric Clapton unplugged. Where it's like he's just a dude in his 40s just hanging out in his cardigan playing like a weird lounge version of Rape Me. Like, yeah, like <laughs> right. exactly. Like it, it could it could have happened. That yeah. could have been a future where like we look back like I think it was like he was proposing or no is if Rivers Cuomo died mm. after Pinkerton, but Kurt Cobain lived like didn't die. Like would we hold up Weezer the way we hold up Nirvana, yeah. but then complain that Nirvana like lost their cool after in utero? Yes, absolutely, <laughs> like, yeah. absolutely.
1: And and that brings and that brings up a perfect point that I wanted to make about the toadies when I was talking about like the year 2000, 2001, What was going on? It's like the I I feel like because I think the idea that Todd had was like, all right, we're gonna make this record. I'm working at a record store. I talk. He said he talked to his boss. I'm going to take a year off to write this record, do a little bit of a tour because the record label is going to want that, whatever. Yeah. And then I'm just going to go back and work at the record store.
2: Yeah, he just had a story to tell,
1: right? And so I think that 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 loss of time, like in the market, and like the sound, like the sound doesn't really necessarily evolve from the band. Like it kind of. They don't need to. I mean, they're they're a niche, like the to- like we talked about, like the toadies are kind of like a niche for their time and their place and their location geographically. And you know, I don't I don't know that I don't know, I don't know that if they had continued on without the break, it, I, if we would think fondly back on Rubberneck because yeah. it's, it's it 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 sits in its own little bubble of time.
2: I think that's interesting that the band broke up too. Like the the reason why the band broke up, I think, makes me really like. Todd Lewis, Mm. which was that the bassist Lisa Mm -hmm. decided she was done with the band because she could, she saw the writing on the wall. She saw that Interscope had like zero interest in actually promoting their band anymore. Yeah. And was like, hey, I'm not going to not make money on a thing that used to make money (laughs) and spend months and years away from people that I care about to like have a record label not even promote the albums that we're putting out anymore. Right. And then Todd was just like, well, if you're quitting, then let's just break up the band. And it's like, that's like, I respect that that level of solidarity. Yeah. But then they came back in 2006. Yeah. And they pretty much have just been putting out records pretty consistent. Like every like three or four years, There's right. a new Toadies record. I haven't listened to any of them. Really? <laughs> I listened to Hell Heaven Above, Hell Below. Right. And I think that's where I stopped. I didn't even know that. So Interscope, they recorded an album and I'm blanking on the name, I want to say Feeler? Uh, yes. So they recorded Feeler to be the second album. Interscope said no. Oh. So then they wrote Heaven Above, Hell Below, and then after they reunited, uh, let's see where I wrote it down here, they would release the second album, Feeler, in 2010, but Interscope wouldn't ha- let them have access to any of the original masters, so they literally had to re-record the entire album oh, man. to put it out. But like again, like that's they clearly were like, look, fans wanna he like their band that I can tell gives a shit about their fans. Oh yeah. And like I don't I'm not gonna sit here and pretend that I think that the Toadies are like
1: selling out arenas anywhere.
2: No. But I'm sure that they're playing nice small clubs to like a
1: crowd that's like excited to see them. And probably mostly in the South, because I saw them with local H. Uh, I would say three years ago, two, three years that's ago. That's a that's a pretty solid. Like those are two bands that I would see. live That's together. a one-two hit, and yeah. I mean, Local H obviously could be argued as a one-hit oh, as well. Um, a fu-
2: definitely future episode of Local H. <laughs> oh yeah, which uh,
1: you know definitely do because they're phenomenal. That's that's and that's a band that like. I saw live only, not even having heard the album back in the day. Like only being aware of "Bound for the Floor." Yeah, uh, obviously as like like the copacetic song. Yeah, because um, that taught me that word. But uh, <laughs> you and the whole generation, just like lives. Uh, you know, um, placenta. Placenta. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes I, I don't even know the name of the song. It's the placenta song to me. <laughs> as a DJ, that's a terrible thing. But it's <laughs> it, it was it was one of those things where you know you saw these both these bands, and that was. You could see, like both of them, the Toadies and Local H, were amazing live. Had a great catalog that no one was, no new, one cared. aware about, yeah. you know, aware of or, or cared about anything. And it's it does it sucks because both those bands deserve uh, a, a loyal fan base. I mean,
2: if if nothing else, let's bring it back to Jeff Buckley one more time. Yeah, people look at Grace as this masterpiece debut album. Sure. And I genuinely, people are gonna laugh when they hear this, but I genuinely think Rubberneck should be held up in that same regard. I think it is a yeah. masterpiece album.
1: And yeah, so if you know, if if Todd had died the way he described the cult members in the song "I Burn Dying," where yeah. he had just thrown himself on the fire after recording the album to fucking get somewhere, you know, some ethereal plane in some higher place, then yeah, uh, I think Rubberneck would have been looked at. But just you know, we're we're talking about a lot of people who died. Untimely, and uh, I think unfortunately, not unfortunately, but I mean that obviously raises the mythos and the importance of the artist because you have this lingering what if. Well, and I'm glad that you brought up I Burn because that's
2: such an important song to Possum Kingdom because Mm -hmm. Possum Kingdom is written as almost a sequel or a continuation to the song I Burn, which I think is interesting when you think about the placement on the album though, because I I Burn is a perfect closing track for the record. But uh, story-wise, it really does make sense for it to go from like, like. Uh, let me get the exact quote. But he he said that uh, for him, Possum Kingdom was about one of the people just becoming smoke. Yes, and then he goes to the Possum Kingdom and tries to find someone to join him. Yes, which is a, an actual lake in Texas, like North Texas. And like the lyrics, the song are so sinister; they're so creepy. And i I kind of, I kind of love.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and everything about the everything about it makes sense. I mean, as from a songwriting perspective, like the drums are just so tribal. Yeah. And it, it it like he said he's walking down the street and like a bush is on fire and then like a car is on fire and then all of a sudden he gets to this house where this party is supposed to be this is the dream he had apparently that spawned the song you get to the place where all the cult members are and like everything's on fire and they're throwing themselves in the fire so it's just this like build up and this this the heat is intensifying and your your heart's beating with a boom, boom, psh, boom, yeah boom, you know it's just it everything about it just speaks to you on a level that is maybe not of this world
2: can we get Ari Aster to like do a film adaptation of I burn into possum kingdom? Cause I'd watch the shit out of him taking his little hereditary midsummer vision yeah. and just bleeding it into like, okay, this is about a cult that this dude just happens to walk in on them, burning themselves in a Texas it's haunted, suburb and is just haunted by them. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But I, I love, I was talking about this song with someone at work today and I was like, I was like, yeah, we're doing the toadies. He's like, oh, yeah, the... yeah. And I was like, yeah, man, that song, like, you've got that opening riff. Yeah. The drums kick in, and it's just like. But then for me, it's that lead riff, that
1: dude. Oh, my
2: God. It's so. Like, it just gets into your brain, and then you've got that little bass lick in the middle of the song. Oh, yeah. And... Boom, 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 Which... boom. It's just like a driving force. <laughs> and I, I was like, I mentioned that to my coworker, who is a bassist. I'm like, you got that bass line, that bum, 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 bum. And uh, I go back to my desk to work, and someone who sits near me sla- sent me a message on Slack that said, were you just humming the bass line to uh, Hash Pipe? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh shit, that is, it's almost the same riff. Yeah,
1: like, <laughs> wow, I never thought of that.
3: With the Lucky Lands you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: I'm not going to lie here, I've become a factor fanatic lately. I'm a busy guy, and getting to eat restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You have 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie Factor is less expensive than Takeout. Plus, considering every meal is dietitian approved it's also nutritious and delicious so what are you waiting for get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50 percent off that's code one hit 50 the words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50 percent off
1: it is that is interesting when you when you when you isolate it like that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But wow. yeah, it, otherwise I would never mistake
2: <laughs> rubber like Toad Possum Kingdom for For hash pipe for hash pipe. But yeah, that bass line and that guitar riff are one and the same. Yeah.
1: And the thing and but the thing also with it is it's not just, you know, you have all these pieces, you have you have an amazing riff off of like a weird E chord, and then you have the and the thing that I love. That fucks so many people up who are unfamiliar with the song. I've tried to play this with bands and with other guitarists. Oh, and whatever. the time signatures the, all over
3: the place. Exactly.
1: The time <laughs> signature. Fuck it. So if you listen, like this song was sampled by Girl Talk. Yeah. Or on one of his albums and he's using it. So he only takes, you know, obviously he goes, Dan it, Dan it, Dan it, Dan Dan it. It does it once. And then you go back and then you have to, Dan, 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 twice the second time so like it it flips back and forth and fucks with people so the drummer has to know what the fuck's going on and whatever so when girl talk samples it, he only takes the the time he does it twice and and loops that which is like crazy to me as a dj because (laughs) like you have to know like otherwise if you try to just play it through and like do it over the instrumental throw up your beat yeah yeah, you can't you can't so it only works it's just i don't know everything about everything about everything in that like i said it's nothing is wasted in that album That was on the last Girl Talk album, which Mm -hmm. is over a decade now. We need a new Girl Talk. He's pulling a fucking toadies. Yeah, we need another Girl Talk record. Well, Girl Talk did an original record with fucking, I want to say Meek Mill, but I'm probably wrong, but he did like his own original beats and then had rappers over it and it was like an EP and it didn't really work. Yeah. In my opinion, I wasn't as, as thrilled about it, but it, you know, it was, artistically it was cool. But do but, you think uh, he also missed his time
2: now? Because now you've got YouTubers that are doing their own little mashups. Yeah, you got and- DJ
1: Cumberbun and Dude. all, yeah, he, he's, he's <laughs> amazing. But 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 he, I mean, Girl Talk definitely has his own niche and you know, be, uh, based on what I've heard, I don't know if he still has it, but his computer was not the most reliable thing in the world. <laughs> 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 For when he did live performances, which cracks me up. And his his software was really fucking old.
2: But that's like, that was the one thing I didn't like about Girl Talk. It's like my brother paid a pretty hefty penny to see Girl Talk live. And he wanted me to come with. And I'm like, if he was mixing the songs up there, it's one thing. But I'm pretty sure he just hits play. And well and, like, he, what he does yeah he adds keyboard. so
1: so i've tried i tried to play around with that because i wanted to yeah. learn mashups on that level yeah and uh and it literally is almost like you know how if you would like diagram a sentence yeah in english class like that is what he does with with sample clips so all of the work is done ahead of time in building the samples and quantifying them making them on beat because he's taking you know instrumentals from bands that played with like live instruments and like putting rap lyrics or something over top of it usually and rap beats underneath it for more punch and it all has to like link up. So, and it's
2: the when it links up correctly, like I the two examples I always use for like where I just think girl talk at his peak and it was um lip gloss mixed with the breakdown from one, one by yeah, Metallica. Probably, yes. And Uh, the opening of his last album with War Pigs with Move Bitch by Ludacris. Oh my God. Like I was like, I could listen
1: to just that for Mm -hmm. a full song. Like
2: if you just put out War Pigs beat with Ludacris rapping over top of it, I would have been fine with that for four straight minutes.
1: Absolutely. And you know what's (laughs) great is that uh, this is a fun little story from my personal life. I used to have Eagles, Philadelphia Eagles season tickets and we would tailgate beforehand. So, I once the the you know close to the end of the time that I had these tickets I had my DJ speakers yeah so I would bring them in the car and plug the power into my cigarette lighter in the car and like my SUV and like just blast the fuck out of the parking lot you know <laughs> what I mean so we were playing I don't know at that time like that girl talk album was very popular but we were playing you know hip-hop and other different things and techno whatever just shit from my iPod so this guy who was tailgating next to us was very angry that we were playing uh, that type of music because clearly he did not like urban music or urban people. people. I was gonna yes. say uh, uh, there's usually
2: a correlation. There absolutely was a correlation. I mean this guy was a racist piece of
1: shit. But so anyway, so he was like, okay oh, you play So I so I literally put on Girl Talk and it starts off with damn it and he's like Yeah Black Sabbath and it was like get out the way. And he was just like oh you motherfuckers and, you know he got so mad, he just like went in. So that was you know I trolled him with Girl Talk so that was amazing.
2: And then he went and yelled at the food monsters that were swimming in his pool. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, so I'm here to see if there's but anything. girl talk is
1: back. Let me just say that he's playing like festivals this year. Oh, sweet! Yes, yeah, so I go- want a new record. Governor's Ball, new ball record in New York so City bad. is where he's going to be with Miley Cyrus. I think <laughs> nice, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, so like the
2: lyrical breakdown. The so I went on Rap Genius because that's like my favorite site to analyze lyrics is like clicking on the the link the blue hyperlinks to see like what people's like fun facts are about certain oh, lyrics. Oh, yeah, and there's a whole like fan theory that this song is about a vampire. And if when you're reading the lyric breakdowns, it's really funny because it'll be like in this scene, the entity is trying to convince, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like it'll just go through like the whole thing and they will be like, or it's a vampire. <laughs> 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 well, and, I mean, yeah. Okay. And like, you know what? As someone who's always looking for an excuse to hear this song, I'll throw it on some Halloween mixes. Sure, it's a fucking vampire song. Yeah, you know, okay, there you go. October 31st, here we come. Possum <laughs> Kingdom blowing out my windows as I'm handing out Well, candy I mean, yeah, and
1: the fact that it could be a serial killer.
2: Yeah, it could be so many things, but yeah. it's, I've, it's funny because, uh, I mean, some people may have noticed I'm not Chris. Uh, so Chris is, you know, doing stuff with Punchline right now, and mm-hmm. he's a little tied up. Uh, I think by the time this is coming out, he's, like, literally going to be playing Anti-Fest, like, a day or two later. So, oh, wow. So, you know. They're getting ready, and I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna do a couple episodes while you're doing punchline stuff, if that's cool." And I was like, "I'm gonna record an episode with my friend AJ about the toadies," and he goes, "Oh, I hate that song, so that's perfect." Oh, because nice. Because I know you love that song, <laughs> like, yeah. but I'm hoping that him listening to our love of this song will maybe make him change his mind a little. Well, bit.
1: I, you know, and 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 that that goes to show is like how you know I think you kind of have to, like you mentioned, your first introduction to rock music had to be so formative as in utero being one of those because that is, like, a typical, like, Steve Albini produced it, right? So you have, like, that big black influence, just Chicago noise, and, like, obviously like they were trying, Nirvana was trying to fucking make something antithetical to Nevermind, the poppiness of it. So you have that, like, the feedback and just the gut, and the guttural noises, like, on Tourette's and shit like that. Well,
2: that's the, I'm going to sound like such a hipster, but even as a kid... I lean towards In Utero. Yeah. Like, I I was handed both of those albums at the same time, not knowing anything about the band. And my instinct was like, okay, these, like, I liked the big singles on Nevermind. Because, mm-hmm. like, at that point, I was listening to, like, Y100 or whatever, like, mainstream, like, alternative radio. So, like, I would hear Smells Like Teen Spirit and In Bloom and stuff. But I pretty much stopped listening to that album around Polly or, like, a little bit past that. Yeah. Because I was like, meh. But... For me like in Utero I would listen to from start to finish. The only one that I couldn't get into for a long time was the Radio Friendly Shifter unit. Oh Radio um,
1: Friendly Unit yeah. Shifter. That's hilarious because that is the song that I opened my finest hour on Radio 104. I got to be like yeah. before I worked at Radio 1045 I got to uh, host a show uh as as a listener and say like all right this is my hour of music that i love and i specifically opened with radio friendly unit shifter to be an asshole (laughs) because
3: it's just
2: and now i love it yeah but like i used to be like god damn this song's five minutes long it's not catchy it's frustrating again we're gonna i'm going back to like a Clusterman reference but like he even talks about how like that album Kirk Cobain's whole point was like, people are analyzing my lyrics too much, so I'm just going to write about books, completely oblivious to the fact that now people are going to analyze why these books.
1: Right, <laughs> like, right. But and like, I went to the library and got out Perfume to yeah. read Scentless Apprentice. <laughs> like, <laughs> source. But like, I'm talking about like society as a whole.
2: Sure. We act like that album was just intentionally trying to not have hit singles. But like, all apologies... <laughs> <laughs> like, like there's so penny royalty. Like, there are so many catchy songs right. on there. Well, yeah. And but ha- we jump to, like, Serve the Servants and scentless Apprentice and, and radio, uh, radio Friendly Unit, unit Shifter, shifter mm-hmm. as, like, well, the whole album's trying to, like... And Tourette's. Yeah, like, yeah, there's a couple of those, but, like... Nevermind had those too. Like
1: sure. Dr- the the whole breakdown of Drain You with the fucking squeaks and- Yeah, and territorial pissing. Like yeah. that song is crazy.
2: Yeah. That was like the song that I loved on that record. Right. Like I almost hated the song Polly because it slowed down everything before I could get to like the song that I, I was really I don't into. need to breathe I'm a kid. Yeah. still this day I lean into in utero because I, I just I love don't get me wrong, I love Nevermind. Yeah. But I think like on a plane and something in the way and stuff just never really connected with
1: me and they still really don't. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, I mean, they—they you can tell, like you can hear even in the noise the the Beatle influence and like the pop, just the love of pop music, like even yeah. fucking ABBA. Like Dave Grohl has an ABBA shirt. You love—they love pop music, so
2: and that's I think that that's the thing that it almost sucks because I feel like Nirvana would still be here if they weren't coming up at a time where like liking pop music was the least cool
1: thing that you could. <laughs> do as a right. musician right <laughs> like, well that's like, yeah like love buzz or you know the single the single they released for sub pop off of bleach like that that cover the yeah. shocking blue cover you know it it, it is it, that's poppy as fuck i mean about a girl yeah like, right. like he, he, that kurt, is a kurt Was a, song kurt was fucking embarrassed by about a girl <laughs> yeah, like, because of how poppy, he's like i don't know if we should put this because he was embarrassed of what other people would think but yeah you're absolutely right like it is
2: such a it's such of all the songs that nirvana ever put out that is the most Lennon McCarthy influenced song that they've ever written. Yeah, like it is. That is like early Beatles.
1: And I just want to point out that you said Lennon McCarthy, which is like communist
2: as yeah. fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Listen, no, I know. Anybody who's listened to me talk on any podcast knows that I can't say <laughs> names to save my life. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like I I think that it's so. And I I know that sounds like it's a lot of tangents, but a that's mostly what happens on every episode of One Hit Hunter. But also, I think that really analyzing the aesthetic of what was happening because I think that the Toadies also would have had a little bit more success. It's funny to me that they were like an opening act for Bush because I feel like that's probably the band that was in a weird way in the exact same bubble that they were in, where it was like grunge is over, but it's inspired these other bands who aren't coming from that same Level of anger and angst, but like they really want to be
1: coming from that level
2: of anger and sure. angst.
1: Yeah, but like, but I the tody. I mean, the tody's based on the time they formed. we ahead of the game. Yeah. yeah, but but didn't break until later. Like you said, like even 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 recording it and then it actually getting to the charts took. Forever, forever. So, like, they have the authenticity, but yeah, B- Bush but Bush is a band. That
2: Bush as well, because I feel like Bush also released their album. Not, not the starting in eighty nine part, but I'm pretty sure 16 like stone. sixteen stone came out in like ninety four, but it, none of the singles really started hitting until ninety five, ninety six. Right. Like, there and I mean talk. About, Say what you will about Bush. I, I mean, they definitely fell off, but like that record, that Sixteen Stone record was just hit after hit after hit well, after and, hit. And
1: and and it's funny that you bring this up because like it, it was released in December of ninety four. Um, but uh, Sixteen Stone. But that is the album that I've been equating in my head, Rubberneck, to all not track for track, but like just on a level of like how many singles they had, how many should have been hits. Yeah. And like how good it is because Sixteen Stone. Yeah, it has has all these good songs, and it has like kind of a. I want I don't wanna say like it feels like an, almost like a Nirvana rip-off.
2: Well, I mean that's what they got labeled as. Right. They were like the post grunge wannabe.
1: Yeah. Because he was like he was like the pretty boy with the long hair. Which is a shame because like I will
2: still st- there's it's funny because the songs that I thought were the best singles, like as a kid, it was all about like machine head. Right. And it was all about glycerine. Yeah. But like now, like as an adult, I keep coming back to come down da- uh, yeah, come down. Because I'm like come down. Is like well, you probably have
1: the the attention span for that song, well, now.
2: <laughs> but I'm like, man, like you know we talked about this on the breeders episode, but like talk about a song where like every instrument is doing what it needs to do to make that song work, yeah, like that really slow, like yeah, like the guitar stuff, the bass line that just keeps like going the like it is a beautiful, beautiful song that like. I like. I feel like this is like one of those things that people say all the time because there's no way to back it up. I feel like that if Kurt Cobain was alive and heard that song, that would be a song that he was like, "Yo, this song's great," because like it has that. Like I feel like it is getting to what Nirvana was, which was like this challenging grunge music, but unashamed of its poppiness, mm. which I think was what secretly he wanted to be able. To, he I think which secretly, is why he wanted
1: to do Unplug so bad because he wanted yeah. his music to be taken seriously. Yeah, and yeah. I
2: think that. I think that he would have hated most of that record, but I think he would have been like, man, come down is like, it's hit. Cause like, I think what he, he it's, it's been documented that he loved the songs by the Foo Fighters that he had heard. Yes. And like, I think the Foo Fighters is another band that falls into that post grunge vibe where it was, it was that same anger and rage that you had on a super unknown or a facelift or a, you know, a nevermind and in utero, but like, unashamed to be poppy as fuck and being like, no, we're writing songs for the radio. Right. Like Grunge was all about, no, we're too cool to be on the radio. And then you have these bands like,
1: no, that's the exact place we want this music. yeah. And there are people, you know, who come from the Gene Simmons school of rock where it's like, you know, I'm writing music to like pick up chicks and like make money and da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, there's absolutely an element of that but then you know, I think grunge was one, not one of the first times, because you had punk too. But like one, it's one of the first times in the mainstream that you had these people who were who were an, who didn't expect it, yeah, genuinely. Didn't, especially all the bands from Seattle, because they were just doing their own thing, you know, in the rain. And you know. <laughs> I think the big, I think the big difference is
2: like, if we're talking punk, we're talking like late seventies, early eighties punk. Okay, actively, I think would have refused radio play. Like we're doing everything in their power to not have it. Whereas I think grunge just. It never even went past anyone's
1: brainwaves that someone would put it on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> like well, cause, yeah, cause there are, so like in the, end, the late seventies, I mean, you didn't have DIY uh, indie labels and no. stuff like that, really. I mean, you have what the Sex Pistols like on bouncing around labels, but EMI e- M- ended up and uh, and uh, and
2: then the Ramones just and the Ramones were on Sire, but like no one like Sire wasn't like really backing. Them. Like I feel like you look back on it now, I'd I have to double check this, but I think I, I would imagine that the Ramones probably sold more records starting in the late 80s early 90s from people buying their back catalog yeah. after the fact oh absolutely like because like i listen to blitz creep bop and that song does not sound like a song from the 70s no today. that sounds like a 90s song. yeah like i'm like okay yeah this is because it was on night it was like this song that was 20 years older than everything else that 90s radio was playing but they still were like yo
1: this is the music we're playing. Well like, yeah and a lot of, a lot of those bands like I was just I was just reading about uh you know the the resurgence of Iggy Pop Lust for Life like yeah. around the time of train spotting because of train spotting and then the, the the subsequent video and then like uh, almost a decade later the the Carnival Cruise or whatever it was line ads and stuff like that. Yeah. So like there is that Kind of, you know, you go back and like, re, you know, learn about these bands that were influential to some people, but those people just happened to form bands. Yeah. And so now they have a platform. Like, I always loved when like Dave Grohl would wear a Buzzcock shirt to like the award show or, you know, Kurt, uh, you know, Offspring wore a germ shirt or something like that. You would learn about these seminal bands that were maybe only important. Uh, at the time to, like, the people who saw them at the clubs or lived in the area of L.A. or whatever. Like, I wouldn't know who the fuck the germs were if Pat Smear didn't join Nirvana or... Well,
3: and
2: that's the thing that I think... We live in this great time where I... I With a click of a mouse, I can find almost any song that I want. And there's a lot of great things from that. But, like, I'm sure you get the same shit that I do for still being a physical media person. Yes. But especially with records, like, I'm... I grew... We both grew up in that generation where, like, if you want to find new music, it's the liner notes. You you really like MXPX? Then fucking look at who they're thanking, and then go buy an OFX record, and like you know, like, right. like or you, comps. We grew yeah. up in the era of comps. Like that was just it was so crucial to the bands that I discovered. Was like, all right, who does who is Green Day thanking? Right, because I want to check those bands out too. Who like who is this band like
1: and that's so gone now and and still to this day there's kind of within indie scenes uh, you know at least through the 90s and early 2000s, that whole idea of selling out yeah
2: and i think that that's the thing that makes these bands again to me so interesting this toadies foo fighters bush era i I would even toss like veruca salt in there sure like it was almost like there was You had this this pile of grunge bands from from the early '90s with like Hole and and uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mm -hmm. that like they just happened to make it. Sure, no one was like charging forward like we've got to get signed. It just happened to be this thing. It spoke to a bunch of people, and then it's like this whole next wave. Like you can't tell me Fruko Salt wasn't inspired by like the riot girl stuff and the whole stuff that was happening a couple years earlier. Yeah, Bikini Kill and Babes yeah. in Toyland and all that. Like yeah. it totally makes sense for that to be what led to them doing their thing, but you're you're going from a generation it all leaps in generations. So you're going from the the grunge generation that was raised on that 90s or that 80s punk rock aesthetic of you don't need record labels you don't need radio you just do the indie label and that's the thing right. but then you have this whole other generation that's growing up on the music that started that aesthetic and then became successful and it's like well you can still be artistic and successful yeah right? yeah so then all of a sudden you've got people where now it's not I, I just want to be on this. I want to be on this record label because this is the record label that I want to be on. But I think that, like, when you get to 94, 95, 96, that's when people start saying, I want this person to produce my record because they produce this person's well, record. And like, that's
1: how the Toadies got their producer yeah. is is they heard the Breeders, which you've, you just yeah. did the episode of or released the episode of. You know, th- they heard that and they were like, We like that sound. That's what, and that's the producer for the yeah. rubberneck.
2: And I think that I really think, because I can't imagine, I'm sure, like, yeah, obviously there was producers that people wanted to work with in the seventies and the eighties and, and for I mean, as long as music's been around, you obviously there's there's producers that people want to work with. Sure. But I really feel like the nineties was that point where it didn't it wasn't that you wanted to work with the biggest name, most famous producer. You wanted to work with the producer who produced your favorite record. Yes. <laughs> like, Absolutely. <laughs> so and and that I think that, that it, it all like bleeds into this very unique Sound that I, I think uh, i 'm going to use a wrestling reference okay, uh, so strap in um, <laughs> that 's the reference, yeah yeah uh, so <laughs> there 's an era of wrestling that a lot of people hate, and it 's the era that I grew up in and it 's my it 's probably still my favorite era, which was called the New generation era, which was a very brief like two year period and it was when Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage and all of these big names that had dominated the 80s into the early 90s had all retired from wrestling okay they would later pop up again in e- uh, WCW but like at the time okay. they were done and WWE had to completely start from scratch and rebuild what they had so they had Shawn Michaels yep. Bret Hart British Bulldog and then a bunch of wacky ass characters like you start getting like duke the drums dumpster drossy and uh erwin r Schyster, the irs man and like all of these wacky ass characters because they're just like we got to fill this with something right and people hate it because it was so directionless yeah and then like the attitude error happened and then everybody was a wrestling fan because they're watching like stone cold steve austin versus the rock and it's like now and, like two... dx and yeah all that like shit. okay everything changed I feel like this era of the 90s, which is the exact same time period that the new generation was happening with wrestling, was something similar where, like, you had this momentous thing. It was the biggest thing that the music industry had ever seen, and they had no control over it. Like, it just happened naturally. And then all of these bands are gone. Yeah. They break up, or members die, or they just fade into like a five-year hiatus before their next record and then you're just like well we got to fill it with something yeah (laughs) so like you're signing the toadies with like i almost feel like this ties back into an earlier episode about space hog where it's like how did space hog get signed so quickly i think that they just needed bands at this point like everyone who was making money for the record company disappears and now you're in a panic mode to like fill those slots sure and I think that that's where, for me, I'm like, I love this time period because record labels are mad dashing to sign whoever they can sign because they need something. And, like, most of these records failed. Like, the, unfortunately, most of these records failed. Yeah. But if it wasn't for all of these bands disappearing, we would have never gotten, like, a primitive Radio Gods album like you tell me in, in any other time period that a major record label would sign that band right like, like the Toadie, like all of these bands i think hit at a perfect time where the biggest thing in music was happening and then it just went away in a matter of months yeah and it was like we got to fill this
1: and and that, and i think a lot of that is is you know kind of a precursor to what's happening now i mean at least maybe it's just my age but i look at some of the artists that are like popular now and the way that they're getting popular now, and it's almost, like, and this is more in, like, hip-hop and stuff like that. Like, no, I'm not talking, like, today's music. Like, like TikTok rappers. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's, it, these songs are getting popular through, like, alternative means. Like, the, all it's almost as if we're now in an era where the record companies were so scared that, like, they would become obsolete, and now they almost are. Yeah. I mean, you can say that there are bands that are succeeding because of record company backing or whatever, but I'm almost, like, thinking that, like, The the music that is is popular, it's like it's not even it's not even the songs that are popular. It's like 30 second clips. Yeah.
2: I mean I I, I'm not even gonna shit on the song because I actually really like the song and I love the person of little Nodzax. I knew that I knew you were going there, yeah. Like everything about him, like everything that I read with interviews from him and I see from him, I'm like, he just is a good dude who totally understands what his career is. Mm And he's not sitting there trying to be like, I'm going to be the biggest rapper in the world. He's like, I'm going to ride this the best I can because I found a niche and like, let's see what happens. Right. And everyone's trying to write him off. Like, I think people are so quick to write him off as like, well, that's a one hit wonder. That's a, a novelty hit. And they could be right. But I also think that he has the potential to like, and not in this exact same vein, but I think he could also be like a Weird Al Yankovic. You know what I mean, like, Weird Al comes out in 83 and everyone's like, okay, well, this will be. Maybe one or two records, and then no one's going to care. Right, and now, dude's selling out like arenas.
1: Yeah, still.
2: Yeah, forty years later.
1: Like, well, yeah, he, he finds ways to 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 stay relevant and change with the times. And and I think that Little Nas X is a smart
2: enough dude and has a good enough personality that he will maybe not always be the rapper Little Nas X, but I think he's going to find his niche to stay in the public eye. Because he's just a likable
1: dude. Sure, he could be like a reality star or an internet thing or host host something like Vanilla Ice, hosting like fucking, you know, home improvement shows. Exactly, <laughs> but like, he is absolutely one of those people who all of the odds were against him. No record
2: label was ever going to sign Little Nas X. Mm-mm. But like, people caught on to a song. It was catchy. And then like, I mean, Country Radio did more for that song than anything. Sure. Now, do I think that it deserved to like beat one of the prettiest songs that's ever existed. One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey on Boys to Men for like the longest time a song has been a number one hit. Not really, no. but, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm glad that it had, like, you know what, that song's gorgeous and that song will always be important to me. I have very fond memories of that song. That song came out at a time when I was first really understanding death uh-huh. through like just family member, like family friends. And I, when I hear that song, I think about that. So that song's always going to have a place in my heart, but like, you know what, if the number one song in America, like in the history of songs being on like the billboard charts mm-hmm. or whatever is going to go to like a 20 something openly gay hip hop country artist, I'm okay with that because sure. that is fucking awesome. Yeah, like, absolutely.
1: Like- I mean, well, he's got, he's, you know, he, with, the, with that description, you got your foot in enough pools of uh, interest. To to yeah. at least rally people, but yeah, it's so it is. It, but I think that 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 really speaks to what we were talking about with one hit wonders is that like you don't know where they're going to come from, and like are they going to be in the right place at the right time? Like, is he in the right place at the right time? Yeah, like because o- Old Town Road would not have worked in uh, in any time in the past. I can't predict the future, but in any yeah. time in the past, that song would not have worked. Now anywhere you need it,
2: TikTok and you need it, YouTube. Yes, you need it. Both of those things to be at their peak. You need, for that to
1: work. And you needed country music to become, to be so bastardized by the Jimmy Buffett drinking partying crowd and become yeah. like, this, not like, you know, what Nashville used to be, but becoming just like a pop, a pop with a twang. Like literally country music is pop with a twang anymore. And you needed a, a, almost a decade of that building up into the public consciousness for that song. So like, yeah, everything has to, everything has to have. And then pulling
2: in a Billy Ray Cyrus who represents like, country music when it was at its peak right like because i was talking to someone about this the other day. one hit
1: wonder in his own right yeah
2: which again he's a so kind of in the same we just did the rick springfield episode but in the same vein like billy ray cyrus in certain circles is absolutely not a one hit wonder no Like, like you look at his country chart standing and that dude had hits for days right but like, as far as you and I are concerned, is like people who didn't listen to country music in the '90s. It's Achy breaky heart. That's yeah, it. That's and for me,
1: and for me, it's not even aching, breaky heart. It's Achy breaky song. Weird, yeah. <laughs> right, which introduced me to. I was like, why is he so annoyed by the song that I've never heard? <laughs> but uh, yeah. but that's the thing. It's, like without planting these little seeds and letting them grow and get to the point, whether it's you know the the popularization in, in culture of of. Um, you know, country music, or whether it's the the entire grunge movement, um, and like stuff like feedback being in popular music, like the Beatles introducing feedback, you know, uh, in "I Feel Fine." Yeah. Without that, do we have grunge? Without you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, but, I mean, I think that that's, and I mean,
2: at the end of the day, do we have punk? Do we have punk music without like Chuck Berry? You know, no. what I mean, like, no. like it's it's all it all connects, and like that's very often at this point, like. You know, I I produce this show, I produce two other podcasts, and then I host my own show. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten to the point now where people come to me for podcasting advice pretty regularly. And like, I feel like such a dick, but like, my first piece of advice is like, don't expect anyone's going to listen to your show. No. But if you keep putting out content, people will find it. Yes. And like, that's what it's about is like you said, you lay those seeds. And like, prime example, bouncing all the way back to the very beginning of this, single came out in August of 2004, uh, of 1994 and did not hit its peak until a November of 1995. Well over a year. Yeah. So, like, then the flip side is you have, like, the, the, <laughs> the anomaly of the Space Hog where it's, like, they formed in 94, they had a record out in 95, and, like, before 96 was over, it was, like, the biggest song in, in the world. Wow. Like, but then, like, how do you follow that up? How do you follow up that crazy trajectory? Sure. So, like... It's always, I feel like in the long run, it's the bands that plant those seeds or, or you know, to, to use the phrase that Chris says a lot, like pay their dues. Mm-hmm. You you put in that time and I, I am trying to remember who it was. It was a, I was listening to a comedian. I cannot for the life of me remember who the comedian was. Um, He was the basis of the movie Van Wilder, Burt Kreischer. I was, okay. to, I was listening to an interview with Burt Kreischer and they were talking about how he's like selling out these comedy clubs now. And they asked him what his secret was like, what's the secret to being a success. And he's like, look, I lucked out. I did a bit about a thing that happened to me that got very, very popular. The, the famous, I'm the machine story of him getting drunk on, on his trip, school trip to Russia and like getting involved with the Russian mob and all this crazy stuff. He goes, and that song, he's like that whole like 10 minute bit blew up and people were sharing it and people were talking about it. But here's the thing. I had 10 years of other material that was there for people to discover to prove that I wasn't just this one bit monkey. He goes that is so much like Every time that you put out something and you feel like no one's listening, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have this moment where it hits and people come and check out the back catalog. Right. And if you have a good back catalog, you have a good chance of success. If you're, he goes, I feel like it's so much harder if the first thing you put out is massive. You have nothing to gr- keep people hanging on until your next thing. Right. And like, I think that that works
1: with music, it works mm. with podcasting, it works with. Everything. Van Gogh sold, what, one painting in his lifetime? I mean, so, you know, no, that, you know, he died unsuccessful. But (laughs) (laughs) but again, like, you know, there's nothing that's stopping the Toadies from putting out a record in
2: 2020 that somehow has another big hit. They're no longer one hit wonder. And then people who
1: are discovering the Toadies for the first time have eight albums to look back on. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I loved about, you know, like these these bands that had their did their time with the indie label and then broken the mainstream like if you discover green day through dookie or through um yeah through dookie yeah you go back and you have kerplunk and 1039 sloppy hours. and i question
2: i wonder if they would have been like they are arguably one of the biggest bands in the world right now absolutely and i wonder if that would have been the case if dookie was their first record because they toured on that album for like two years right but during that two years you had two full-length albums of stuff that you were also discovering on top of those 14 songs that you would become obsessed about. Yes. Um, And like, I mean, it's based on the record sales of insomnia, insomniac. When that came out, it was very possible. That could have been the end of that band's career. (laughs) Like if, if that was their second album, they wouldn't have, I don't think they would have been as big as they are now. Right. And I think a good example is like, I love them, but you look at Weezer. Yeah. I mean, like, Weezer's still going strong. I'm not saying that Weezer is not like a powerhouse of a band, but like you compare the the popularity of Weezer during that first album and then Pinkerton happens and then they're just gone right.
1: for a long time. And, and yeah. they could have been gone forever. <laughs> yeah. Like well, and yeah. And that, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, how much of it is uh, and uh, I'm a terrible Weezer fan for not knowing this, but, uh, you know, the, they lost their one member. Um, Matt Sharp. Matt Sharp. Yes. Um, you know, and you see the difference and. Oh. Hundred percent. As, 100%. as some, I hate to I hate to drop this, but as someone who who worked on the radio Weezer station for iHeartRadio, <laughs> like and spent hours listening to interviews and editing them and like learning, so I could like put something together, you know, to to work on that, which was a passion project because I love Weezer. But you, you're sitting there and you you wonder like, all right, the Green Album, I love it. Like Red Album's pretty good. Like da da. da. But like you do, you have this inconsistency. Not, I don't know about with quality because I feel like every Weezer song has the same quality. It's just, does it are the things that what Rivers is writing about connecting with people and i think that's really what it comes down to is like is this connecting with uh, uh, a majority amount of people you know a majority amount of the time so <laughs> that
2: was the toadies episode we got we talked
1: about him enough uh, i think so so aj real quick do you have anything that you want to promote buy rubberneck by the toadies if you don't own it okay good um, promotion and on <laughs> and honestly all they up but no uh so yeah i just i i have a, a couple dj thing like i guess i don't know if they're channels or what the fuck they are on mix cloud uh so which which nobody listens to but mix cloud if you go on uh look up aj santini or you look up uh, surviving life i put out uh like a mixtape every week of just like random ass fucking music that makes no sense uh basically in the style of a cassette like 45 minutes to side yeah uh not you know to reference super drag um <laughs> and uh and but yes yeah, and and just and that's really it so yeah All right, we'll go check out some
2: of AJ's stuff. Obviously, it's going to be linked in the show notes, and uh, we'll be back with another episode of One Hit Wonder coming soon. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Vefalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. You can hear Punchline's cover of Weezer's The World Has Turned and Left Me Here off their new EP Songs of 94, available on Spotify. Due to unexpected global pandemic, Antifest has been postponed, and we will let you know when it's back on. Visit punchlion.com for updates, as well as news, merch, and other upcoming tour dates. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunder at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll be back next week with another episode of One Hit Thunder.
3: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. uh, And right now you're going to be getting a little
1: little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all.
0: (laughs) And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom.